All right, well, good evening. And if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Now, tonight is a continuation of a study we began a couple weeks ago. And I'll warn you, if you're new with us, um, <laughs> you might want to fasten your seatbelts because the stuff we're going to talk about today, well, a lot of people don't even realize. We have a lot of people in our culture, and especially even in the church, that don't really understand uh, what's going on around us. And you can't really understand where we are until you first understand where we have been as a, as a people, mankind. And so we're going to be taking on some tough issues tonight, but it goes along with uh, the subject we started a couple weeks ago. So let me just start off by saying that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible. And as we said last time, in these 11 chapters, four great events are recorded. The creation of the universe, the fall of man, the flood, and then the attempted construction of the Tower of Babel. Now, let's read verses 1 to 4 again. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That would be Noah and his family. The, the flood has already happened. They have left the ark and now they're uh, on the move. They come to the land of Shinar. They dwelt there. Then they said to one another, now these, this would be a part of Noah's descendants, okay? They said, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, as I said last time, we're not going to understand what the Tower of Babel was all about if we divorce it from the one who led the people back then to build it. His name was Nimrod. Nimrod. We are introduced to Nimrod in chapter 10. In fact, chapter 10, verse 8, we read, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. The word translated mighty in the Hebrew refers to a champion, someone of superior strength and courage. It was the same Hebrew word used of David's mighty men who were his bodyguards. So these were uh, the strongest of the strong, the special forces, you might say. Uh, well, Nimrod was a very mighty man. In fact, verse 9 tells us, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Actually, as we said last time, Nimrod was the first cult leader in history. Some believe that verse 9 should be translated, he was a mighty hunter of men's souls in defiance of the Lord. He was the founder of the first false religious system in the world. A system that was really started by Satan through Nimrod and a system, guys, that is still around to this day. You see, Babel later became Babylon, the place where all false religions got their start. In fact, it was the seat of all occult, esoteric worship. Now, verse 5 of Genesis 11 we read, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they, have, they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, us speaking of the Trinity, go down and there confuse their language, 
that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The false worship that started in Babel eventually spread all over the world after the Lord confused the languages, confounded them, and scattered the followers of Nimrod throughout the earth. But Babylon was still its capital city, and it was finally built, and it became the mother of all false religious systems on the face of the earth. In fact, the whole religion of the entire world is going to culminate during the tribulation period with what the Bible calls Mystery Babylon, uh, Revelation 17, verse 5, uh, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And God will eventually judge this system that started at the Tower of Babel and continues to this day and will be judged when God pours out his wrath and judgment upon the whole world. So Revelation 17, God judges the world church, this one world religion. In chapter 18, he judges and destroys the one world political system, the one world government. But again, all the false religious systems of the world were birthed from the Babylonian mystery religion which started under Nimrod. And that's what verse 5 of Revelation is actually saying. This woman is called the mother of harlots, which means she gave birth to, or in other words, she is the fountainhead of all false worship on the face of the earth. Now, let me kind of give you a little historical background, and we'll kind of move forward, and I'll show you what I mean when I say this system that started under Nimrod is with us even to this day, all right? Nimrod had a wife whose name was Semiramis, and she was the high priestess of this Babylonian secret or mystery religion. Now, she claimed at one point that she conceived a son miraculously by a sunbeam, that he was virgin-born, and that this child was actually the son God that she had given birth to. And he was born around the time of the winter solstice, and she named him Tammuz, Tammuz. That is why she is often pictured holding Tammuz in her arms with the sun behind each of their heads. He was the sun god. She was the mother of the sun god. So they are pictured often with Semiramis holding Tammuz as a baby in her arms with the sun behind each of their heads, which was later reinterpreted by the church to mean it was an aura of glory and veneration that they called a halo. But it really starts out because this was the sun god, supposedly, and he is pictured as a child with his mother with the sun behind their heads. Now, Thomas was being groomed by his mother to be the center of a worship system that we know eventually spread around the world. When he became an adult, legend says that Thomas was out hunting one day, and he was gored by a wild boar, and he died. Well, his mother went into a time of fasting and prayer. In fact, she fasted and prayed for 40 days, and suddenly he was resurrected. Now, whether you know it or not, that became the basis for the 40 days of fasting or denying yourself of Lent that lead up to Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection. I want you to just keep sensitive to the fact that, you know, a lot of things we see today in the church even got their start back in these days, okay? Later on, his followers celebrated his birth on the 25th of December, the time just after the winter solstice when the sun seemed to be reborn. 
as the days were now getting longer. And so to help the infant sun god, who had just been reborn, they would light logs in their fireplaces to help the sun god get light, okay? Because, you know, he's just an infant. He was just reborn on the 25th. So the Yule logs, they call them, the word Yule is a Chaldean or a Babylonian word. It means, it means infant. They were actually helping the infant sun god by lighting these fires to, you know, give light, okay? Well, they would do this on the day before the 25th of December, the day they celebrated his birth. And then so as the children went to bed that night, the Yule log was burning in the fireplace. When they got up the next morning, the Yule log had completely burned out, and there was a decorated tree in the house that had just magically appeared. Of course, we know that the parents set it up after the kids went to bed, all right? Uh, but it was a brightly decorated tree that symbolized life. In fact, as the centuries progressed and these traditions evolved, and this celebration moved north into Norse country, uh, the tree that they used was an evergreen. The evergreen was a symbol of perpetual life because it was the only thing strong enough to survive a Norse winter. So the evergreen was the one that was decorated and placed in the house. Now, to celebrate his resurrection from being gored by the boar, they began to decorate eggs and to have a joyous celebration in the springtime, which later became known as the Feast of Eshtar. And they celebrated with the eggs again, colored eggs and with uh, rabbits, all symbols of fertility, all symbols of life, and in this regard, celebrating the resurrected life of Tammuz, who had died but had come back to life. When Semiramis died, she was given the title the Queen of Heaven, which gave rise to a Babylonian mother-child cult. They both were worshipped at that point. Her son Tammuz was considered a savior of his people, it was, in effect, though, a false messiah purported to be the fulfillment. You know, we know him as a false messiah. The people that worshipped him thought of him as a true messiah, a true messiah. And uh, they believed that he was the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Eve in the Garden of Eden. See, God had promised a deliverer, a messiah, uh, that would eventually come. And so they believed that Tammuz was the fulfillment of that particular promise that God gave to Eve and Adam in the garden. Now, you have to understand, Satan's plans were destroyed in the flood. Remember we studied Genesis 6, how that, I believe what is being taught is that the sons of God, fallen angels, came down and they cohabitated with human women in an effort to contaminate the human race with demon seed so that Messiah could not be born. And of course, the offspring of these angel and fallen angel and human women were the Nephilim, the fallen ones, giants, okay? These were demonic hybrids. Uh, Satan, though, tried to contaminate the human race with demon seed. God thwarted that by sending the flood, wiping all uh, living things out. I mean, all the you know things that lived on the land, and especially mankind, except for one family, Noah, and his family. They found favor in God's eyes. They were righteous because of their faith. But it says that Noah was pure in his genealogies, uh, it could very mean, in the Hebrew could be translated, uncontaminated. He was the only, and his family were the only ones left, maybe, that had not been contaminated. So God thwarted Satan's plans to corrupt the human race so that Messiah couldn't be born. So Satan figured if he can't beat him, join him. So he decided that he was going to, uh, to uh, rip off the promise that God gave to Eve, and he was going to develop a false religious system based on that promise, although he was going to feed the world a false messiah a false messiah. 
And that would be Tammuz. But this religion eventually came to be known as Mystery Babylon, who it says that she is the mother of all harlots. Now, idols picturing the mother as the queen of heaven with the babe in her arms are found throughout the ancient world after the Tower of Babel. We know, again, from Genesis 11, verse 9, that God confused the languages and the people were scattered. He scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And so they took this mother-child cult with them throughout the world. In Phoenicia, the mother was called Ashtoreth, and the child was called Baal. In Egypt, she was called Isis, and the child was called Horus. In Greece, she was known as Aphrodite, and the child was called Eros. The Romans called her Venus, and the child they called Cupid. In India, they were known as Isi and Aswara. And later, when pagan Rome was Christianized under Constantine, the mother became Mary, and the child became Jesus. In the Old Testament, though many of these facts are not mentioned specifically, there are a number of places where we can see how this false system of worship had been embraced and practiced by the Jewish people in rebellion against the true faith which God gave to them and the worship of the true God. In fact, we see in Ezekiel how he is protesting. Now, Ezekiel is a, um, an exilic prophet. Uh, he prophesied during the Babylonian exile. And he's protesting in his book, about the people of Israel weeping over Tammuz. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. And let's read verses 13 and 14. Now God is taking uh, Ezekiel, who was in uh, Babylon, and he is really taking him on a little tour uh, of the, um, the temple, which was not yet destroyed, to see what was going on, okay? What was going on? Well, you can read the whole chapter yourself. The one I want to zero in on was in verse 13. He said to me, uh, turn again. Now the Lord's talking to Ezekiel. Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. This will be the people of God uh, and all. Verse 14, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz. If you read further you will find out that God shows Ezekiel 25 men in the temple area, in the, in the house of the Lord, who had their backs to the temple and were facing the east, worshiping the sun god. Eastern mysticism coming into the worship of God. Now that's significant because we are living at a time when Eastern mysticism has come into the church and has been repackaged as biblical Christianity, you have, as I have told you before, you have uh, meditation practices that are being called prayer techniques. You have uh, transcendental meditation, which has been Christianized and called contemplative prayer, spiritual formation, breath prayers, centering prayers. goes by a number of different names, where people in the church, in an effort to contact God, are repeating mantras or practicing breathing exercises which put them in an altered state of consciousness known as the silence. And in the silence, they say, is the only way you can really connect with God is by emptying your mind of all thought. You can't do that unless you use a mantra or a breath prayer. And what you're doing is you're putting yourself into an altered state of consciousness. This is Eastern meditation stuff. And in this silence, 
You can connect with God in a way you can't otherwise do. You know, the vo- God will speak to you, all right? Uh, but you have to be careful, they tell you, because not all the spirits out there are friendly. They're not all Casper the friendly. There are some wicked spirits and all. So you have to learn how to pray prayers of protection before you go into the silence. You know, prayer is not that complicated. I mean, nowhere in the scriptures are we told that, you know, we can't just enter the presence of God. We don't need to, you know, get into some altered state of conscience. That's not biblical meditation. That's Eastern mysticism. And it's in the church, just like it was in Israel's day. And people don't even realize it because they're biblically illiterate. They don't, they're opting for experiences more than truth. And if the, if the experience is positive, they feel good. They feel empowered afterward. They feel a sense of peace. Then that feeling authenticates the experience. It must be from God. Because God doesn't give us bad experiences. I had peace. I had joy. It's got to be from God. Hey, look, the devil is a manipulator of feelings. And will give experiences that are positive if they lead people down a path of deception. So we're seeing it. But it was back in Israel. They were weeping for Tammuz. All right? The very thing we're talking about. Well, Jeremiah mentions the heathen practices in Israel of making cakes for the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. Turn to Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, verse 18, now when I was a Roman Catholic, we had this really nice family Bible. Maybe some of you did too. When you, I'm talking if you're older like me. Not old, older. And we had this really nice family Bible. never read it, but it looked good on the coffee table. And uh, you'd open it up and it had beautiful pictures painted, you know, at certain points. You know, you have the, the Garden of Eden and there was a nice picture painted there and of Adam and Eve and so on. And you had, you know, Noah and the flood and all. Well, they had these pictures, okay? You turn to the New Testament, as I recall, I remember this very vividly, one of the pictures showed the assumption of Mary into heaven. See, she didn't die. She was taken up into heaven bodily, which is not biblical. Okay, it's a Roman Catholic Church teaching. And then the next picture showed her on a throne and Jesus Christ putting a crown in her head that said, Queen of Heaven. Mary was crowned the Queen of Heaven. So the first time I read Jeremiah 7 and heard how God denounces the worship of the Queen of Heaven, it took me back a little bit. Because I had no idea. I was a young believer. Okay? But here's what, and this goes, this was way before Mary. This has its roots in this Babylonianism. But Jeremiah 7, verse 18. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. See, they're doing the very thing that started with the Tower of Babel. Okay? Turn to Jeremiah 44. And don't forget, Jeremiah was prophesying at a time when God was just about to judge the nation. In fact, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet because he knew the judgment was coming. And so he was out there with all his heart telling the people, turn. I mean, God's judgment is coming. In fact, it's even too late for you to escape some of it. The Babylonians are coming. And guess what? If you don't repent now, they're going to kill you. But if you repent and you submit to this, they will take you captive to Babylon, but you'll live. But don't fight it, okay? Because this is of God. 
He's, he's judging the nation for its immorality and idolatry. Well, the people heard that and thought he was working for the king of Babylon. They thought he was a spy sent to demoralize them. So they beat him up and threw him into pits and wells and poor Jeremiah. But for 46 years he prophesied weeping that the people would repent because he knew it was coming and they wouldn't repent. So they're living in a very immoral time, a very wicked, uh, idolatrous time. And in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 17, we read, Jeremiah 44, yes. Um, let me read this, and i got to explain this to you, though. It's really something, okay? The people, the people. Now, Jeremiah has been telling them to you know, repent, all right? Uh, and then in chapter 44, verse 17, But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth. This is the people talking now in response to what Jeremiah was pleading with them to do. To burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. The women also said, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, uh, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? So the men were right along with this. The men were giving their, these guys are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of their family. And they're telling the women, do whatever you want. Yeah, go ahead and make cakes to the queen of heaven. Burn incense to the queen of heaven. Now listen to what they were saying. They were saying, ever since we started listening to you, Jeremiah, and we stopped doing these things and worshiping the Queen of Heaven, all this calamity has come upon us. In all those other years, we were being blessed when we worshiped the Queen of Heaven. What they didn't realize was, all those other years that they were being blessed, that was God blessing them. Not because they were idolatrous, but the goodness of God was trying to bring them to repentance. He was trying to show them that even though they had turned their backs on Him, He had not turned His back on them. So they were living, they were coasting off the grace of God. And finally, when God's grace had come to an end and judgment started to fall, and here's Jeremiah telling them, get right with God, they interpret it to be, oh no, we're being punished by the Queen of Heaven for not worshiping her anymore. See how messed up their thinking was? See the thinking people have today also? You know, they're living in sin, but their lives are not suffering any calamity or adversity. And we come along and say, that's a sin. You need to repent. Nothing bad has happened to me so far. In fact, I'm being blessed. Well, you don't understand. God's a very good God. He's a very kind God. But he will not let you go on forever in that sin. And the same is true with a nation. Okay? America is coasting. Is coasting off of God's grace that he gave to us even when we, we were founded. I mean, up until the last generation or so. Our nation, though it had its problems, was still a nation under God. We still were a people that did honor God in many ways. Today, we, as a people, we have turned away from God. We still give him lip service, just like Israel did. In fact, God goes on to say in Jeremiah uh, 44, verse 25, the people were saying, oh, no, no, we need to get back to worshiping the Queen of Heaven. Because when we worshiped her and burned incense to her and so on, we were blessed. And God says, really? He says, verse 25, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, 
We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. God says you will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. What is God saying? Listen, that all got started in Babylon. That's where you're going. You love the queen of heaven so much. That whole thing got started, that worship system in Babylon. At Babel, Tower of Babel. You love it so much, you know what? I'm going to take you out of your land in judgment, and you're going to go to Babylon. You can worship the queen of heaven all you want there. That was the idea, okay? Look, the worship of Baal, when the children of Israel entered the promised land, the worship of Baal was everywhere. That was the, the chief pagan religion of the Canaanites. But it was another form of the same mystery religion that originated in Babylon, because Baal is considered identical to Tammuz. In fact, one author said, one historian said, the doctrines of the mystery religions of Babylon seem to have permeated the ancient world, giving rise to countless mystery religions, each with its cult and individual beliefs, offering a counterfeit religion and a counterfeit God in opposition to the true God revealed in the scriptures. End quote. The pagan high priest of this mystery religion in Babylon, this Babylonian cult, called himself, now this is the, the high priest, called himself Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex, uh, the root is bridge builder, Maximus, supreme. So the Pontifex Maximus was the supreme bridge builder. What does that mean? Well, he was the one who bridged the gap between God and the people, or the gods and the people. Now, Alexander Hislop, in his classic work, The Two Babylons, spends a lot of time documenting how that when Babylon fell to the Medes, the pagan priests of the ancient mystery occult religions centered in Babylon since the time of Nimrod were forced to migrate north and west to Pergamos, where these mystery religions were headquartered for the next several centuries. You remember when Jesus dictated the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He dictated them to John the Apostle. And one of the, one of the letters that, uh, that he dictated was addressed to the church at Pergamos. This would be after the Babylonian mystery religions had migrated there after the Babylonian Empire fell. And notice one of the things he says to this church. Revelation 2, verse 13, he said, I know your works, and I know where you guys live, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. What started in Babylon under Nimrod was a religious system that was actually founded by the devil. It was his masterstroke. He was going to rip off the promise God gave to Eve that someday a Messiah, a Redeemer would come, and he was going to give a counterfeit Messiah that the world would worship. I mean, God already gave him the promise. People all knew the promise. Why not just, you know... Satan doesn't do anything new. He just kind of copies what God's doing or counterfeits or, or jumps into what God's promised and tries to you know, do something that uh, appears to be the fulfillment. Okay, But this whole system moved to Pergamos. All right? And it was there when Jesus dictated this letter to John that we have uh, in Revelation chapter 2. I know where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is. Now the pagan high priest in Pergamos also called himself Pontifex Maximus. Now, when Rome rose to power, these priests, listen, eventually migrated to Rome. They were following the money and the, and the power. Okay, that's how it works, all right? Following the money and the power, they eventually moved from Pergamus, first Babylon to Pergamus, then Pergamus to Rome in 378 AD, somewhere around there. And that's where they were headquartered. 
to fully understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks or writes his letter to the church at Pergamos, where there's Satan's throne is and so on, okay? To fully understand what Jesus is talking about and referring to in this letter, we have to take a quick look at church history because in a symbolic way, the letter to the church of Pergamos or the church in Pergamos represents that period of church history from 313 A.D. to 600 A.D. By the beginning of the 4th century, the Roman Empire was in decline. After the reign of Diocletian, who reigned from 303 to 313 A.D., there was a power struggle between two of his generals, Constantine and and Maxentius. Constantine's father had prospered when he prayed to the God of the Christians. So Constantine thought, well, I'll give it a try. He prayed to the God of the Christians. His uh, tradition says the next day he supposedly saw a vision of a flaming cross in the sky with the words in Latin that read, In hoc signo vinces, which means, In this sign you will be the victor. Well, he went on to defeat Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge and immediately declared his conversion to Christianity, although he still worshipped the sun god and never gave any real evidence of being born again. But for all intents and purposes, uh, Constantine was now a Christian, okay? He immediately assumed headship of the church, taking the title of Pontifex Maximus. It was the emperor who was first called the vicar of Christ, the emperor, a title inherited by the popes when the Roman Empire disintegrated. In fact, Constantine's title of Pontifex Maximus was also taken by the popes. Thus, the head of the Roman Catholic Church is called Pontifex Maximus, or the Roman pontiff to this day. Constantine rescinded all the laws persecuting the Christians passed by his predecessor, Diocletian, who was brutal. Diocletian murdered thousands and thousands of Christians. Well, when Constantine had his conversion, quote-unquote, and was now the emperor, the first thing he did was to rescind all the laws that, uh, that had legalized the persecution of Christians, and um, he, he replaced them with the Edict of Milan, also known as the Edict of Tolerance, which forbade the persecution of Christians. That wasn't all. Okay? Not only did he stop Christians from being persecuted, but he, he gave to them uh, places of prominence uh, in the government, in his government, okay? In fact, he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And uh, all these Christians now had come out of the catacomb, no longer persecuted, and now they were wearing the robes of state because they were leaders in Constantine's government. The state married the church, basically. He Christianized paganism along with its practices and holidays the pagan festival of Saturnalia, the winter solstice festival connected with Tammuz, uh, his birth, which took place in December around the 21st to the 26th. Uh, it was celebrated with mistletoe, yule logs, and decorated evergreen trees, as we had just said. Uh, he reinvented that holiday, which was a pagan holiday, but he made it Christmas. That became the celebration of Christ's birth. You see, in those ancient pagan cultures, they didn't have five-day work weeks, two days off. They worked hard seven days a week. And all they had to look forward to was their festivals. Now, Constantine wanted to unite pagan Rome with Christian Rome, the pagans in the Roman Empire with the Christians. And he was smart enough to realize that, look, one of the greatest ways to do that would be to blend the pagan holidays with the Christian days of importance or holy days. So Saturnalia became the birth of Christ, Christmas. 
Also, the festival of Eshtar, the goddess of fertility connected with Semiramis, which was celebrated in the spring with rabbits and colored eggs, that became the festival of Easter or the, or the celebration in the church of the resurrection of Christ. Pagan temples became churches. Pagan priests became Christian priests. In effect, again, he married the church with the state. Again, Satan figured if I can't beat him, I'm going to then join him. I'll marry the church. Therefore, pergamus literally means mixed or objectionable marriage. When the state persecutes the church, the church grows strong and healthy. When the state marries the church, it never works out good for the church. The church grows weak and worldly. Now, I personally believe, guys, that mystery Babylon mentioned in, Re in the Revelation 17 is broader than just the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not trying to say that uh, this mother of harlots is the Roman Catholic Church, okay, uh, per se. Remember, mystery Babylon has been around since Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church ever came on the scene. In fact, we read about that mystery religion, that Babylonian mystery religion, that uh, she spawned all the false religions on the face of the earth, which would include the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is not a cult in the classic sense. The cults deny, they take away from Christ, they take away his deity, they take away his bodily resurrection, all right? The Catholic Church does not do that. And the Catholic Church has a lot of wonderful people in it. And, and, and some of them, I believe, are genuine believers. What the Catholic Church does is not take away, it's not a, it's not a classic cult because the cults deny the deity of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. The Catholic Church doesn't do that. And I was raised in the Catholic Church, okay? The Catholic Church recognizes the deity of Christ. They got the Trinity right. They believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. What the Catholic Church does is not take away from the gospel. It adds to the gospel. What do I mean? In, in Roman Catholic theology, you're saved by grace plus works. In fact, they define grace as works. Okay? Every time you observe a mass or uh, a sacrament or something like that, you earn an installment of grace. You earn grace, okay? And these get saved up over the course of your life. And if you acquire enough installments of grace, like the little green stamp we used to get in the supermarket, okay, when you bought something, you get you green stamps, you put them in your little green stamp book, and if you have enough green stamp books full of green stamps, you can get a toaster or, or a grill or something. Remember that? I remember that, redemption centers. You, 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 you trade them in. That's Roman Catholicism. You earn little installments of grace, which you get, get pasted into your book, I guess. And at the end of your life, if you've earned enough grace, you get to go to heaven. If not, you, get, you go to purgatory, work off the rest of that bad stuff, and then you go to heaven. But it's all based on your works. That's why I was so blessed when I finally realized, as I read the Bible, that yes, the Catholic Church had taught me a lot of good things, but they taught me a lot of bad things too. So even though I knew who Jesus was, who the Father was, who the Spirit was, even though I knew Jesus is the Son of God who came down and died for my sins, third day rose again from the dead, well, I was taught that I had to add my works to that belief. Read the book of Galatians. That was the very issue Paul was dealing with with the churches of Galatia. They were trying to add works to their faith to get saved. 
And Paul says, if you add, I'm going to paraphrase, if you add one ounce of works to a billion pounds of grace, you negate grace. You divorce yourself from Christ, you cannot be saved. So I'm just saying here that the Roman Catholic Church is a false religious system. Rooted in a lot of truth, a lot of good things. And again, there are some Roman Catholics who really know the Lord. But not because of the church, guys, in spite of the church. But I believe the Roman Catholic Church is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a one-world church by bringing people of all faiths together. I believe they're going to be instrumental in the one-world church that the Antichrist, his false prophet, will help bring the world into. As the Antichrist focuses on the political end of it, although at one point he does go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, puts his image in the Holy of Holies, and demands to be worshipped as God. So he, now he becomes the focus of a new religion. Get the Revelation study. if you're. We went into this in great detail. Okay, chapter 17 and 18. Uh, but I do believe the Roman Catholic Church, although it's not mystery Babylon in and of itself, it is a big part of it. In fact, I believe it will spearhead the uh, world church. It will bring... And I, and I say that because the Roman Catholic Church has already started to do that, especially under John Paul II. And I've told you this before. Let me, for the sake of those who are new, let me just read this again to you, okay? Again, I believe the Roman Catholic Church is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a one-world church or religion by bringing people of all faiths together. John Paul II addressing 1,500 leaders of the great world religions at the international prayer meeting in 2001 said, and I quote, this is John Paul II, he said, we can no longer bear the scandal of division. So all the world religions have to come together. We can no longer bear the scandal of division. In 2002, Pope John Paul II called a meeting for peace at Assisi, Italy, and leaders from the Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, Orthodox, Anglican and Protestant religions all attended. They all came at the beck and call of John Paul II. At this meeting, the name of Jesus Christ was never mentioned one time, and all Christian symbols, including crosses, were all covered so as not to offend and promote unity. Vatican II states, and I quote, The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in other religions. Their doctrines often reflect a ray of truth which enlightens all men. Let Christians preserve and encourage the spiritual and moral, and moral truths found among non-Christians. End quote. That's Vatican II. The Catholic Church, I think, is sounding more and more like the mother church of a one-world religion. When asked, can you still get to heaven without Jesus? Nigerian Cardinal Francis Arins, the Pope's deputy for outreach, answered, and I'm quoting him, expressly, yes. <laughs> Can you still get to heaven without Jesus? Oh, absolutely, he says. God's grant of salvation includes not only Christians, but Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and people of goodwill, end quote. Really, people of goodwill. So, you know, forget the Great Commission. <laughs> Don't worry about going into all the world and preaching the gospel to everybody because everyone's going to get there, even people of goodwill, okay? Whatever that means. What does that mean, okay? John Paul II on more than one occasion gathered together for prayer. And I'm not making this up, okay? More than one occasion, 
there in the Vatican, he, he gathered together for prayer witch doctors, spiritists, animists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and other leaders of world religions declared that they were all, listen, quoting him, praying to the same God and credited their prayers with generating, I'm quoting him again, profound spiritual energies that would create a new climate for peace. That sounds very much like what the New Agers believe. If you can get enough people together visualizing or praying for the same thing at the same time, you'll reach, you can reach a critical mass of consciousness and catapult the human race into a new age, which they believe is coming, the age of, a, of Aquarius. We're in the Piscean Age right now, and Jesus was the, the Messiah for the Piscean Age. But there's another age coming, a new age, where this Maitreya Buddha will be, the, will be the reincarnation of the Christ spirit for this new coming age, the age of Aquarius. But the New Agers uh, have believed for a long time. In fact, they had their harmonic convergence years ago. Uh, they said if we can get enough people meditating, uh, visualizing world peace at a given time was like 12 noon Greenwich Mean Time, we can catapult the world into a, a, a utopian period. Of course, nothing happened, and it wound up being called the moronic convergence. Um, but we see the thoughts out there. We see the, the belief system already in place. We see the, the Roman Catholic Church is uh, creating a climate for ecumenism and is being used by the devil to bring the world religions together. And after all true believers in Jesus Christ are removed from the earth at the rapture, what will be left will be a mixture of apostates from Christianity, Roman Catholics, Protestants, even independent Bible churches. Look, there's a lot of people who go to church. You know, in Israel's day at the height of their apostasy, there were still a lot of people going to temple. Now, they were worshiping false gods while they went to temple. But there was, there was a lot of Jews that were still worshiping right up until the time God judged the nation. In fact, they believed because they were going to temple, God would never judge them. In fact... At one point, God told Jeremiah, because the people were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. We're the people of God. His temple is right here in Jerusalem. God would never judge us. And God said, you go down to the temple there, Jeremiah, and you tell the people, don't think because the temple is here that you won't be judged. Don't think because you're going to church that you won't be judged because of the way you're living. God says, I see the heart. You can come to church, give me lip service, but I know what's going on in your heart. I know what happens when you leave church and the things you do in your private lives and in your businesses and in your marriages. You're cheating and you're lying and you're stealing and so on. God says, I see all of that. Don't think church is going to protect you from judgment simply because, you know, you call yourself a Christian and go to church once in a while. The, the very same thing that happened in Israel's day, it's, it's happening today. The very same thing. And when the rapture happens and all the true believers are gone, what's going to be left on the earth are going to be all the apostates, the churchgoers that were not saved, Roman Catholics and Protestants, and those who went to independent Bible churches, plus, of course, others like those with pagan religions and the cults and people that, you know, all these isms, you know, and different belief systems. They're all going to be left on the earth. And that's when... The Antichrist will unite them through the false prophet into a one-world religion. 
and a one-world government. At that time, I believe this world church will be headed up by the Roman Catholic Church, and it may not even be called the church. I don't know. In the Bible, it's called the great harlot, but it's coming, and the world is being prepared. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, as humanity, now talking about this future time, as humanity was united in an idolatrous false religion at Babel, so it will again, so will it again be united in the end times under the aegis of the final Babylon. History will thus come full circle. The final Babylon, personified as a harlot in Revelation 17, verses 1 to 5, is described as she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The world will be intoxicated, deceived, and seduced by the Babylonian false religion headed by the Antichrist. Passion, the word there, is the Greek word thumos, and describes strong, consuming lusts and desires. As a result of their passion, sinners will engage in an orgy of rebellion, idolatry, and hatred of the true and living God. While sexual sin will be rampant, the immorality spoken of here is spiritual prostitution to the Antichrist's false religion. It pictures unfaithfulness to God. Having imbibed the wine of the seductive harlot, the nations of the world will continue on their course of spiritual defection from God and end up drinking the wine of the wrath of God. The third angel reveals this will prove disastrous. So the system that started in Babel or at Babel is a system that continues to this day and will find its ultimate fulfillment in the one world church, which God will judge in Revelation 17, a day yet future. Now, turning back to Genesis 11, let's read verses 5 and 6 again. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that, that they purpose or propose to do will be withheld from them. You know, language in and of itself is a fascinating thing. As I was reading this, and I've heard this from other people, but let me just read to you what one commentator said. He said, modern linguists know man did not invent language any more than man invented his own circulatory or nervous system. Most modern linguists believe language is so unique that the only way they can explain it apart from God, okay, you know, we know it's of God. But the world doesn't want to accept that, so they have to explain everything apart from God. So the only way they can explain it is to say it was part of some unique evolutionary process. That's another way of saying we have no clue. We, we, do, we do know it was of God, but we don't want to believe in God, so we can't go there. He goes on to say language is so complex because languages exist as a whole system, not as small parts put together. Most modern linguists believe all languages come from one original language. And I've heard that years ago. And that's very biblical. Okay? In the beginning, all the people of the earth spoke a single language, which God gave them. But then God confounded the languages, made all people speak, all groups speak different languages, and they were scattered across the earth. And God says as he saw them building this tower, this city, because they were all unified. They all spoke the same language. They all could put their heads together and, and focus on a single purpose together. And God says, now, nothing that they purpose or they propose to do. In other words, imagine and purpose 
will be withheld from them. Verse 6. Nothing that they propose to do, nothing they imagine and purpose to do will be withheld from them. As I was studying this, um, Henry Morris, who's a was is it with the Lord now, but uh, was a great godly Christian and also a very brilliant scientist. He wrote a commentary on Genesis, and he has some interesting things to say from a scientific perspective, but I, I, I thought this was interesting. He said, with regard to this, God saying whatever they imagine and purpose to do, they're going to accomplish. So we're going to need to go down there and confound their languages. Morris said, the problem in the Lord's own judgment lay in the unity of the people, a unity which was made possible only by a common language. Do you see how important this cry for unity is today? You know, Jesus didn't pray for unity as the number one thing among his people before he died. He said, yes, Father, make them one, even as we are one, but make them one according to your truth. Your word is truth. So it was only unity based on God's truth that was important. Unity, I mean, you know, when people are unified, they're strong. Like a snowflake by itself can do nothing. Put enough of them together, like we experienced a couple days ago, can shut a whole city down. When people can communicate and be one with each other, they can accomplish great things. But that's not always good if the purpose or what they're imagining is not of God, okay? But he said the problem lay in the unity, which was made possible only by a common language. Furthermore, with Nimrod's presumed knowledge of the satanic mysteries and his access to demonic powers, literally nothing which he might decide to do in the future would be beyond his and his followers reach. Morris believes that Nimrod's real purpose in building this city and tower and creating this whole worship system, uh, his real purpose was to dethrone God himself. Sounds like something Satan wanted to do, right? Before he was kicked out of heaven? He goes on to say he had indeed practically unified all men, most of them perhaps unwittingly, in this satanic partnership and no doubt had other plans in mind once the human population was completely involved in his conspiracy. Satan had surely promised him the rulership of the world, listen, perhaps even the whole galaxy, once his heavenly rebellion was successful and God had been dethroned. End quote. Now, I'll let you run with that, okay? I mean, I, that wow. Morris really believed that, you know, when Satan... Uh, got behind Nimrod. Of course, Nimrod was Satan's pawn, just like the Antichrist is going to be Satan's pawn. But the the devil had promised Nimrod this great, you know, he was a mighty man. And, you know, he fed into that pride by saying, look, I can make you the greatest man that's ever lived. You can become the ruler of the whole, the whole world if you follow me. Well, Genesis 11, verse 7, as we bring this to a close, God said, come, let us go down. Well, of course, that is a reference to the Trinity. Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of, of all the earth and they ceased building a city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, God confused man's language, thus dividing man 
so that he no longer had unity. Because with the unity uh, of all mankind, they purposed to do evil things. And God confused the languages of the earth, and they have been confused for almost 6,000 years now. It's only been, listen to me, in the last couple of decades that mankind, since the advent of computers, mankind once again speaks a universal language. It's a mathematical language based on ones and zeros. The whole world can communicate now through the use of computers. In fact, I, I believe that microchips have replaced the bricks and mortar of the Tower of Babel, and computers have replaced the Tower of Babel itself. And once again, man seems capable of achieving whatever he puts his collective mind together to accomplish. What is man putting his mind to, together to accomplish lately? Did you see the news in the last day or two? How they have made it possible to have three parent children? Genetically, they can take the, the genetic material. In, and the idea is that some couples, because of a genetic defect, can't have children. So if you can add good genes from a third person, you can correct that and have, they can have healthy children. Sounds good. Okay, I'm not against couples having children. It just creeps me out um, when man starts playing God like that. When man starts taking genetics and splicing animal DNA with human DNA to create chimera, these animal-human hybrids, which they're doing, and we've talked about that, um, I have to ask myself, how close are we to God's judgment? Because that seemed to be what was going on during the time just prior to the flood. The uh, fallen angels had taught mankind how to splice, or uh, mankind became willing uh, hosts for demonic hybridization of demonic whatever DNA. You say, well, they don't have DNA. Do you, do you know that? I don't know that. They can take human form. It seems that they were able to splice human DNA with demon DNA or whatever it was in Genesis 6 to create the Nephilim. There's a lot about the spirit world we don't know. We assume things, and our assumptions might be wrong. But we see that we, are, we have entered a time where man is playing God, where he is imagining things, and the Lord said anything he imagines he can eventually accomplish. And the first thing is we have begun to speak the same language, understand the, uh, unlock the human genome and things like that. Um, as we begin to act like God, the first thing man wants to do and has begun to do is to do away with the real God. And again, this is the reason for the rise of atheism in our culture. Yes, because man wants to do his own thing. Doesn't want God looking over his shoulder. But this was the thing that happened at the Tower of Babel where they were going to replace God, do away with God, create a, a religious system that would be worshipped as God. And we're seeing it again today. And um, you know, the first thing man's going to wants to do is get, do away with God. How is he going to do that? By teaching and believing that he can become God. We've talked about this. You know, it's called the lie. I mean, uh, if you want to know more about this, go online and get our into our uh, Battle for Truth series and listen to parts two and three, we talked about this. The same lie that Satan fed the human race in the Garden of Eden, you will not surely die, you'll become like God, Eve. 
is a lie that has spread throughout the world and uh, is going to be the ultimate lie that the Antichrist is going to use to deceive the human race in the end. You can read about it in Romans 125, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. Paul calls it the lie, very specific lie. A lie that goes back to the Garden of Eden, I believe. And it's basically a lie that says, you can become God. You can become God. If you just understand, if you, if you are enlightened. What did Satan tell Eve? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, you need certain knowledge, Eve. You need to be enlightened, and you can ascend to Godhood. We see today all over the place, okay? All right, guys. Well, the first 11 chapters of Genesis set the stage for the story of redemption to really begin to unfold, which God is going to bring about now, starting next week, with one man in particular, a man named Abram, that God is going to call to become the father of a new nation and uh, become the man from which the Messiah would eventually come. We'll start looking at now Abraham next week and uh, just see what God has to say about this plan of redemption now beginning to unfold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it is light to us and gives light in the darkness, Lord. If we study it, learn it, walk in the light, we'll never stumble in darkness. Lord, we realize that the human race is coming full circle. What started so many centuries ago, Lord, is happening again. What started at the Tower of Babel, this mystery religion is going to find its fulfillment in the one world religion, but that will all give way to your return, Lord Jesus, to establish your kingdom and the true worship of the true God across the face of the earth. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies. In Jesus' name, amen.